0: Boston College School of Theology and Ministry integrates deep theological
1: study with contemporary questions, preparing theologians and ministers who are equipped to respond to the needs of today's church and world. Generous financial aid is available. Learn more at bc.edu/stm.
0: Welcome to Inside the Vatican with America Media. Each week, veteran Vatican reporter Gerard O'Connell and I take you behind the headlines for an intergenerational conversation about the biggest stories out of the Vatican. Well, several dozen EWTN employees from around the world are gathered in Rome this week. Yesterday, they met with the Vatican's Secretary of State. First up this week, Cardinal Perilin spoke to EWTN about the importance of them being in communion with the Pope, but an EWTN-owned press agency ran a headline that told a different story.
1: I have lived through the Nazi period, I was exiled twice so as to save my own life.
0: Up next, inside the secret identity of the Vatican's Jesuit saint-maker. Who was Peter Gumpel, and why did this trusted consultant to several popes hide his real family name?
1: Emanuela was not an ordinary child. She was a Vatican girl.
0: Finally, a new Netflix series details the still-unsolved mystery of Emanuela Orlandi, a 15-year-old Vatican citizen who went missing in 1983 and was never found. I'm Colleen Deli. This is Inside the Vatican.
1: Good morning from New Orleans, Jerry. Good afternoon from Rome, Colleen. Finally, we have a government.
0: All right. We have a lot of stories that we want to talk about today, so we'll just jump right into it. The first one is that Cardinal Perilin, who is the Vatican Secretary of State, spoke at a dinner for EWTN's Europe-based staff and its CEO, Michael Warsaw, on October 19th, so last week. And in his talk, the Cardinal stressed the importance of Catholic media, like EWTN, being in communion with the Pope rather than, quote, fanning the flames of polarization. He prayed that a spirit of communion with the Pope would be the distinctive sign of EWTN's work. Jared, let's just start out with how this message was received by EWTN.
1: Well, I'm not a member of EWTN, so quite how they received it is another question. The first we really knew about this is when we read in Aci which is the Spanish version of the Catholic news agency, ran a headline which astounded me and many people here. It said, and I'll translate, Cardinal Parolin defines EWTN, quote, as a work of God at the service of the truth.
0: Right. And why was this so surprising?
1: This headline kind of was the diametrically opposite of what Pope Francis had said when he spoke last September in Bratislava, the capital of Slovakia, with Jesuit community.
0: I have the quote here. He said, there is, for example, a large Catholic television channel, and EWTN is the largest Catholic television channel, that has no hesitation in continually speaking ill of the Pope, he said, "I personally deserve attacks and insults because I am a sinner, but the church does not deserve them." And then here's the headline quote: "He says they are the work of the devil." I have also said this to some of them.
1: Yes, and that was the headline that went around the world. The Pope says, "EWTN." He was obviously referring to a part of it. Is doing the work of the devil because they're undermining the magisterium, the teaching of the Pope. They're undermining the personality of the Pope. There. Really into a certain type of attacks or continual attacks on the pope. So,
0: was this really this these words from Cardinal Parolin that were published in Aggiornata? Were they signaling a one eighty between Cardinal Perlin and what Pope Francis said, or uh, is there more to this? Uh,
1: I think people here were, were astounded to see the headline because uh, it seemed to put the cardinal in contrast with what the pope had said. Some months earlier, and uh, I, I know uh, this raised lots of questions. It was the first that many of us knew that Cardinal Parolin was speaking there. Uh, I, for one, received a lot of messages saying, "You know, what is this?" Two days later, on the twenty-first, the Vatican decided to publish the full text of what the cardinal said, and they also gave an English version of it, uh, and so. They didn't comment on the headline or anything, but uh, you didn't have to be a genius to understand that this was a direct response.
0: Yeah, there's a few things we should note here. One is that Acii is owned by EWTN. So at first, that was the only uh, account that we had of this speech. But once the Vatican dropped the full text of the talk, you realize that this quote about EWTN being defined as a work of God at the service of the truth is actually kind of part of this wish list that Cardinal Parolin is laying out. He says that he wants their viewers to be able to define them as a work of God at the service of the truth. The full quote is, may this spirit of communion with the Pope, which like his whole talk centrally focused on EWCN being in communion with the Pope, he says, may the spirit of communion with the Pope be the distinctive sign of your work. May this be felt and touched in your television broadcasts, as well as in your articles and in your multimedia programs. May every one of your viewers or readers recognize EWTN as a work of God at the service of the truth, ecclesial communion, and the good of humanity. So, in short, the achi headline was taking this quote out of context.
1: Yes, the, the Vatican is very concerned that here is one of the biggest media, Catholic media operations in the world. reaching reaching 100 countries. It's got, uh, according to its own statistics, around more than 80 million people listening into it. Many bishops, many priests, uh, many lay people. And to find in this media ongoing attacks in some of the programs, not all the programs, they, they broadcast mass, they broadcast a lot of things, but in some programs there are direct attacks on the Pope. Having spoken to many people over these years in the Vatican, it's not my own personal reading of it. It it is a serious question, so serious that many people wondered how the Vatican would address this question. Now we know that Cardinal Parolin accepted their invitation to come and talk and dialogue and he was with them for dinner. We now hope that uh, this message that he has given, given them, this is what they tell me in the Vatican, he quotes Newman in, the, in his speech, he says, heart to heart speaks, cor at cor loquitur, which was, of course, one of the famous sayings of Newman. And they hope that uh, from the heart of the Vatican to the heart of EWTN, the message is received.
0: After the break, two stories of Vatican intrigue. First, the story of a German Jesuit's secret identity. Then a look at the new Netflix true crime documentary series, Vatican Girl. Stay with us. German Jesuit historian Peter Gumpel died on October 12th just shy of his 99th birthday after spending his entire career working on canonization causes at the Vatican. But Gumpel wasn't his original last name. Ken Woodward, who is the former religion editor of Newsweek, wrote in America last week that Peter's real last name was Hohenzollern, making him part of a royal family that ruled some or all of Germany and Romania beginning in the 11th century. So, Jerry, give us some background. Why why would he have changed his name?
1: Well, I knew Father Gumpel for decades. I spent many hours with him. Mm-hmm. And since this story was published, I also talked with someone else who knows, New Gumpel equally well, perhaps even better. Father Gumpel came from a distinguished family in Germany.
0: And did people know that?
1: The, this was published in the... Obituary by Father Lombardi, the former Vatican spokesman, and it's been in many places. What hasn't been identified is who that distinguished family was. Father Gumpel, uh, to me and to my friend whom I've also spoken to, he spoke a lot personally about his life, his background, but he always made clear that he didn't want it. Put into the public domain.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: He knew Pius the Twelfth. He met him as a little boy. He knew Paul the Sixth very well, and Paul the Sixth asked him to write his biography, mm-hmm. and he gave it to the Pope on condition that this would be destroyed afterwards.
0: Right, and he was questioned about his background a lot during his life, but never said who his family was.
1: Yeah, what is clear and what is uh, I think in the public domain members of his family were persecuted by the Germans. At least one was killed.
0: Jerry, could you situate us in time here? Like, how old is he when when this persecution of his family starts happening, that kind of thing?
1: Oh, he was, uh, I think, in high school, if I recall correctly. When Hitler came to power and it was becoming increasingly clear that life could be difficult to say the least for anybody who didn't share his views, the family decided that he should move out of Germany.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And he eventually ended up in Holland. As There he joined the Jesuits.
0: So we don't know a lot about his childhood. We do know that he met these high-up Vatican officials. So it's clear that his family was Movers and shakers in some way. And then when he's a teenager, he goes to Holland and joins the Jesuits under this fake name. So there have been some suggestions that, you know, maybe he changed his name in order to join the Jesuits because it would have been, it would have put the Jesuits in an awkward situation during the reign of Hitler to have someone with this very distinguished German family name as part of the society. There's also been a suggestion that he changed his name in order to be able to leave Germany to begin with. And then there's also been the suggestion that he had some Jewish background and was changing his name to avoid you know, being persecuted by Hitler for that.
1: I never heard from him or had any inkling from him that there was a question that he was part Jewish or had Jewish blood, I checked with a close friend of mine who also knew him very well, and he confirmed my own understanding. He said, I have never heard this before. It was published in these days. So that raises a whole other question. I think we have to read things very carefully. But the title of the story, we said, is secret. Yes. Of course, that will attract attention and attract people, readership, etc. But uh, the the fact is, uh, there is no positive confirmation that I'm aware of, which says this was his name. We do know for certain that he was from a very distinguished family. And we do know that he had good reasons, first of all, to protect himself from Nazi Germany when he went to Holland to have a change of name. He had other reasons when he joined the Jesuits that he didn't want to be identified. And of course, this raises questions. But Pius XII knew who he was very clearly. All the popes up to the present day, I think, knew exactly who he was. He was with his good Jesuit friend, Father Paolo Molinari. He worked very closely with him. And they were both, and Father Gumpel was one of the counsellors of the pope. Pope Paul VI, John Paul II. I, I know this for certain. And I also know for certain that Cardinal Ratzinger, as cardinal consulted him and I think as pope so he he was in, by any standards a big hitter in rome for many years
0: yeah but kind of in the shadows right i was i was struck by that in in Ken's report that he he talks about Molinari the the guy that he worked with and how the two were kind of uh, uh, foils to each other where one was very outgoing and then gumpel was more the like quiet, academic type. You knew him. Can you tell me about him and and why he was so important?
1: Well, I thought he was an extraordinary, kind man. He was a man who would happily meet you at any time. You could phone him and he would give you a time and say, please come. And he didn't put time limits on the time he spent with you. And I really remember a man who was a scholar of the highest order, one who made a major contributions to the church, to the canonization process of many saints.
0: Yeah, 150, it said in this article.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's probably true. And he was also advisor to the popes, and he was advisor also to many people in the Courier. He was also con- he was also confessor to many people.
0: And interestingly, he has this whole background with Nazi Germany, you know, trying to flee it and everything. And maybe his best known work is about Pope Pius Twelfth, the wartime pope who has been accused so many times of, you know, having been collaborating with the Nazis in some way. And Peter Gumpel did not agree with that.
1: Well, Peter Gumpel was adamant that history will be kinder to Pius XII than the present mediatic climate. He is convinced, he said. I may not live to see the day when he is canonized, he's made a saint in the church, but I am certain this will happen one day. He was the expert on Pius XII. He got access to the Vatican secret archives, the documents, before anybody. Uh, there were uh, Father Graham, one of the American Jesuits, was involved with other three other people, I think, four other people, in producing, I don't know how many volumes more than 12 volumes, I think, of wartime correspondence relating to to XII. He was absolutely adamant that there is no smoking gun in all these documents. And he went through them. Anybody who knew him understood that he was a man who left no stone unturned to arrive at the truth. And he was prepared to accept any evidence to the contrary. I think he was heavily attacked. He points out when Pius XII died in 1958, Golda Meir from Israel praised him. He he pointed out that there was much appreciation from the various Jewish organizations after the war. He, He recalled that the rabbi of Rome, the chief rabbi of Rome, decided to become a Catholic and to take his name, Eugenio, after the war, because of what Pius Twelfth had done. And so he says, this first part, years, decades after the war, 10, 15 years after the war, 1945 to nine, the mid-1960s, he said, Pius was being respected in the Jewish world. And then this book came out, and it pointed to the silence of the Pope, and it became a big story, it became a theater play, everything. And he said, From then on, you had consistent attacks against Pius.
0: So this debate about Pius XII is still going on, and the Vatican a few years ago opened its full archive of Pius materials uh, so that scholars can dig through it. Back when that happened, we on Inside the Vatican did a deep dive episode kind of digging into this. So if our listeners are interested, you can hear a lot more of that in our deep dive about Pius XII, and I'll link to that in the show notes.
1: There is no doubt. This was a great man by any standards. He was so open to people, and even those who would criticize him, he would sit down and try to argue with them. But he was targeted very heavily. Uh, I mean, when a book came out called The Hitler's Pope, he just couldn't believe it. He he felt that this was the ultimate lie. I, I, I think he was a very holy man, and I think he's now in his happy happy reward.
0: Here's how the America article on him ends. It was also fitting that Kurt Peter Gumpel SJ was laid to rest in the German cemetery inside the Vatican's walls, rather than in a vault inside the Hohenzollern Castle. The church was his family, the Jesuits his companions, the saints his only royalty. Our last story this week, a new true crime documentary series on Netflix called Vatican Girl has brought renewed attention to the case of Emanuela Orlandi, who was a 15-year-old girl who lived with her family in the Vatican and disappeared after going to a flute lesson in 1983. It's a really difficult case to sum up briefly, it's also really famous, you can read about it everywhere. Part of this is that there are so many theories and people claiming to have information who have come out in the last 40 years since her disappearance, but The basics are this. A few weeks after Emanuela disappeared, her family started getting calls demanding that Mehmet Ali Ajka, who was the man who shot John Paul II in 1981, be released from prison. They said if he was released, Emanuela would be returned. And then this spread into some conspiracy theories about who was actually behind the kidnapping. Was it the KGB trying to silence Ajka? Was it a group that wanted to silence him for another reason? Was it maybe the Italian mafia who wanted ransom money from the Vatican? It wasn't clear. But Jerry, you've been covering the Vatican since 1985, a couple of years after uh, Emanuela's disappearance. What's it been like watching this unfold over the last 30-something years?
1: It's a mystery what happened to her. This, she's one of the disappeared people, and there are many in the world.
0: Mm-hmm. She's the only Vatican citizen still declared missing, which is interesting.
1: Yes, uh, she's the got attention because she was in the Vatican. There are many young women like her who have just disappeared and get nobody's attention, and certainly not Netflix's attention. It's a very sad case, and I know. I mean, this started under John Paul too. It continued under Benedict XVI, and it's still a, a live issue under Pope Francis. So much so that, on another of the many alleged tip-offs, they ex-opened the, the graves of some of the place of the tombs in the German cemetery where uh, Peter Gumpel was buried.
0: Yeah, they received a a tip-off in the Vatican that perhaps Emanuela is buried in that cemetery, and so under Pope Francis, um, some of those tombs were excavated, and they never found remains that matched Emanuela's there.
1: There have been all kinds of theses. The Italian magistrates went deeply into this case. They interviewed people who knew her, people who claimed to have information, high Vatican people. The Pope John Paul II was anxious to find out to try and see what happened.
0: Did anything ever come of those magistrate
1: interviews? No, oh, there's there's volumes that they mm. they have done, but nobody could get a direct track to where she was gone. Some stories say suggest she may have been taken out of the country. Was she married off to somebody or taken into some kind of traffic? nobody seems to know. There are all kinds of suggestions. You know, in the absence of information, speculation flies. And uh, then uh, there are people who really get into trying to sidetrack the investigation.
0: In the documentary, there's a whole interview with this guy who is you know, claiming that he was involved in actually orchestrating the kidnapping. And then they make it clear, you know, in the next episode that actually he's totally not credible. And there are plenty of leads that are like this. The big new revelation in this series is that a woman who claims to be Emanuela's close friend says that just before the disappearance, Emanuela told her that, quote, someone close to the Pope had been, quote, bothering her in the Vatican gardens. And Her friend interprets this as someone making unwanted sexual advances. And remember, she's a Mm 15-year-old. And then right after that, Emanuela's brother comes on and gives a hypothetical. He says that Emanuela wouldn't have told their parents if, quote, a cardinal were making advances. But it isn't clear if the brother thinks that this person close to the pope who was bothering her was actually a cardinal or not. So, again, you know, more uncertainty introduced I feel like the most compelling part of this documentary for me was the calls for the Vatican to release what it knows, if anything, right? There are a number of theories. One comes from a Vatileaks document that was published in 2016 that shows the Vatican allegedly paying for Emanuela to be kept in a Catholic hostel in London until 1997, and then possibly paying for her body to be returned to the Vatican. Do you think that this documentary release will add any pressure to the Vatican to disclose any more information?
1: First of all, they don't identify who this friend is.
0: Mm -hmm. She stays anonymous.
1: I I find this quite extraordinary. Let me say why the magistrates went to great efforts to interrogate, to call in, to listen to anybody in her circle who might know anything. Let's say I am highly skeptical of the existence of a witness with extra information who hasn't in the past 40 years been either identified, located, or come forward. And it's easy to point a finger at the Vatican say there was somebody close to the Pope. Well, who's close to the Pope? And then to perhaps suggest maybe even the Cardinal. I I, I mean, it it kind of raises the stakes, raises the interest, but uh, where is the foundation? And I I, I think we have to look at some of these uh, films, documentaries or stories uh, with a certain level of, of rationality that says, you know, can this be?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, always a a healthy skepticism. I'm not as like instantly skeptical of the friend's testimony. I feel like, you know, if you're a a scared teenage girl and something is happening, then, you know, you, you might wait a long time to talk about it. But either way, I think that you're right about the healthy skepticism being necessary and interrogating this. And I think that as with the story about Peter Gumpel, you know, This documentary, this new story, posits a solution to the case, but it doesn't actually solve the mystery. And that is important for us to remember.
1: And people love mysteries and secrets.
0: Totally. Vatican intrigue.
1: (laughs) Welcome to Agatha Christie.
0: (laughs) I I always like it when we talk about stories and and you say that even Dan Brown couldn't come up with this. Jerry, it's been a pleasure talking about these stories with you. Thanks for sharing a bit about your friend, Peter, and I will talk with you again next week.
1: Thank you, Colleen.
0: Two last headlines we wanted to mention. First, over the weekend, the Vatican renewed its provisional agreement with China on the appointment of bishops for another two years. I'll link in the show notes to our story that spells out the details. And second, by the time you hear this, the first global synod report is expected to be released. We'll have a few stories up at America summarizing the report, along with an inside account from Austin Ivory of how it was drafted. I'll link to both of those in the show notes, and Jerry and I will give our own analysis of the document here on Inside the Vatican next week. Inside the Vatican is a production of America Media. This episode was produced by Maggie Van Dorn and Ricardo Da Silva. Audio editing by Kevin Christopher Robles. Production assistance from Cristobal Spielman at America Media and Juan Pablo O'Connell Piquet. Thanks for your help, Wampy. Our executive producer is Sebastian Gomes. To keep up with the latest Vatican coverage from America Magazine, follow us on Twitter at I-N-S-D-E, Vatican Pod. That's inside without the second I, Vatican Pod. And you can find all of our coverage at americamagazine.org. While you're there, please consider becoming a digital subscriber to America Magazine. It's easy to do, and it's the best way to support our work here on Inside the Vatican. For America Media, with Gerard O'Connell, I'm your host and producer, Colleen Delvey. We'll see you next time.